Welcome to Handmaids and Harlots, a weekly podcast that explores both the Handmaid's Tale and Harlots series produced by Hulu. This podcast is marked as heavy spoilers, as it will include episode-by-episode synopsis, as well as analysis of both shows and their written source material. The textual references for this podcast are The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood, interviews, essays, analysis, and other available materials regarding Miss Atwood's book and forthcoming second installment, Testaments. Textual references for all Harlots-related podcasts will be taken from Hallie Rubinold's book, The Covent Garden Ladies, Pimp General Jack and the Extraordinary Story of Harris's Lists, as well as interviews, essays, analysis, and other available materials regarding Harlots by Hulu. Join me, Ray, and my co-host, Kay, as we watch, read, and discuss these two provocative and intelligent stories. We open to June, waiting at the corner of the street, watching as other handmaids and their shopping partners pass by her, thinking of how she was once so bad at waiting. This brings up a line that Aunt Lydia once said, They also serve those who stand and wait. Not all of you will make it through. Some of you will fall on dry ground or thorns. Some of you are shallow-rooted. Think of yourselves as seeds. What kind of seeds will you be, girls? June answers that she pretends to be a tree, and she waits. June's new shopping partner of Matthew joins with the usual greetings, Passing the fine houses of Matthew tells of how Gilead is attempting to take back Chicago and that she prays for the Waterfords and their sweet baby, that she cannot imagine what came over of Joseph, before June replies that she is of Joseph. We've returned to the shopping center and June catches sight of Alma and mentions they have tomatoes on sale. They speak through the aisles. Alma says June is sneaky and also mentions that Casey, a handmaid we presumably have not met, had a baby. This baby was called a shredder as Alma explains that it was born with its heart on the outside. June mentions how Chicago is about to be lost and asks Alma if she was able to ask her own Martha about the Mackenzies. But Alma responds that she tried, though the Martha is super mean, and that June should just leave the Marthas alone. An aunt comes down the aisle and asks if June needs help, which June responds with a meek, no thank you. After the aunt leaves, Alma says that the Marthas don't trust handmaids, where June responds with, who does? We cut to the house of Lawrence and the Martha peeling a carrot and a shot of Lawrence's kitchen. It's well-stocked. It almost has a warm, homey look to it. It's revealed there's two Marthas in this house. While June tells the second Martha that they only had golden beets, but she's assured they'll be roasting up great. Beth is disappointed by the cut of meat that June brought back. Cora tells June that in the parlor, they are waiting for her. The next scene shows a slow movement up a wooden cane with a bronze ornamental handle, being held by Aunt Lydia, revealed after June walks in and the usual greetings are exchanged. There sits Eleanor with Lawrence's hands at her shoulders and Aunt Lydia across from them. June says she's glad Lydia is feeling better and Lawrence said he didn't believe he'd ever see the aunt back in the house and how well she's bounced back. He moved around the couch and sat with Eleanor as he tells June that Aunt Lydia is just checking up on them, which Lydia tries to dismiss as a routine visit to see how June's settling in. Both Eleanor and Lawrence both say that she is fine. Aunt Lydia responds by asking if she's been respectful, even mentioning they've had troubles with June in the past. Eleanor gives an all-is-well answer but wishes to leave, and while Lawrence helps her up, they're asked about the ceremony, which we all know didn't happen. After they leave, Aunt Lydia asks June what's wrong with Eleanor, where June can only report that she doesn't know. Lydia seems to suspect there's something unseemly going on because of Emily's reaction to being in the house in only two days. Moving to the main hall, Lydia declares she wished to see June's room. 
She collapses as she tries to walk up the stairs, and as June tries to help her, Lydia Cattle prods her on the side and explodes as she believes that June should have never received a new posting and that she should be on the wall. Lawrence is just coming down the stairs and stares down at Lydia, trying to step down her aggression by deflecting, saying of Joseph was seen gossiping at loaves and fishes. Spare the rod, spoil the handmaid, is his response. The other aunt brings a wheelchair over to help Lydia out of the house, and Lawrence doesn't help June, just wonders the voltage of the rod. We cut to Canada with Luke holding a bottle of beer and gazing at the picture on the beach. He has a phone call where he's asked to bring a notarized form that the lawyer hasn't given, and he also has a lot of paperwork in the box with Waterford in it. As he comes inside, we see Nicole Hawley happily playing with Moira when he mentions he has to go. Moira asks that if he could play with her, hold her, and he dismisses it outright. Moira questions if he's going to be there for dinner when Aaron reminds him Emily's coming. He questions when Emily's going to talk to her own family, and Moira mentions that everyone's timetable is different. Next, we go to Emily in her doctor's office, the next shot of being of her ear, where we see the healing for removing her tag. Her blood work is normal, but Emily has many other doctors to see. There's also the mention of the clitoral reconstruction when she is ready, though Emily seems phased when the doctor mentions that her, the small issue of high blood pressure. We return to the Lawrence household with June, looking through the drawers, holding her side before entering the kitchen and asking for something for Burns. It's there we see another Martha standing there, discussing how that Martha can't stay. They're mentioning they're helping her escape, and Lawrence walks in onto the hen party. He's come to ask after the tea for Eleanor, and after asking about the new Martha, he catches Cora in a lie. June follows him, and he says he doesn't like strangers in his house. June tries to plead for the Martha to stay, eventually explaining she's trying to escape. You help me, and you don't know me. Is that what you think? The sound of the boiling kettle is the only other noise we hear after he leaves. As June returns to the kitchen, the tea tray is not only holding the cup and kettle, there's a small metal leaf that holds two red and white capsules. Beth shoots off that June must have given a hell of a blowjob for the Martha to stay, and June fires back it's a red center special before taking the tea up to Eleanor, resting it outside her door. Returning to the kitchen, she hears the Marthas arguing. June's offered to go and help where she's told moving people is dangerous, and we find out the escaping Martha was a high school chemistry teacher. The next shot we have is at the bottom of the Martha's dress as they pass by some guardians. June mentions it's strange to be invisible, and that the color they chose for the handmaids is for the opposite reason. They're too visible. We see many Marthas and Ikano people with bodies hanging from the walls spacedly. When one of the Marthas passes expired, she's taken off by the other guardians. June's able to pass through the lines as her pass is good. June explains as they walk through the laundry section that the handmaids aren't allowed here because of the chemicals from the commercial laundry. After leading the escape Martha to the garage, she's instructed to stay there where June holds her hand and wishes her luck. Beth apologizes for the blowjob comment and June says she's heard worse. We're let in on how Beth is a Martha because she had her tubes tied and that she could cook was the only reason she didn't work upstairs in Jezebel's rather than the kitchen. She knew Moira as well as where we find out that escaping Martha is not going to escape. She's going further in. She makes bombs for the resistance. We see Emily watching the kids in the playground for a moment before heading over for dinner. Dinner seems to have gone well as Luke pours some wine sloppily, very drunk-wise. There's talk of the inside of Gilead involving food before they talk about the diets they had before. Luke starts to ask Emily about her wife, and Moira tries to keep him from pushing. Moira has to dis dismiss him hard. Moira explains the reason he's like that is because he sees Emily as June, and that June may not call if she got to Canada. Moira breaks down to Emily that it's okay to be scared of calling. Back at the Lawrence household, a clatter brings the escaping Martha along with another who'd been shot by the Guardians. Beth says to get her to the basement. They're all attempting to help the Marthas before being called by the commander. June goes to answer along with Cora. Cora tries to lie who's in the basement, but the commander catches her again. The doorbell rings as only June says someone was hurt. 
Guardians are at the door when June notices the bloody handprint on the wall. Eleanor comes into view, playing the perfect wife, leading the Guardians into the living room to wait for coffee. She sees the bloody handprint and asks for Cora to clean it up before telling June to go back to the basement. Back in the basement, things are not getting better. They can't let the Guardians help without destroying the underground resistance. June has to hold her hand over the Martha's mouth so she'll be quiet as the Guardians continue to search. By the time the Guardians have left, the woman has died. June has pressed the escaping Martha to stick to the plan. When Lawrence comes down and sees the dead woman, he chastised June for not even knowing who this woman was, telling her that women like her are children. When June asks after Eleanor, he explodes, saying she shouldn't presume to ask about his wife, telling June it was a mistake to take her into his household, and June is instructed to clean the Martha up. June struggles to get the Martha out of the basement, but Beth helps her carry out to the backyard. Halfway to the backyard, Beth's called back into the house by Lawrence, and June must take care of this alone. She buries the Martha with a struggle and ends with a silent prayer. June is then in the bathwater, bathing off the sweat and mud. Beth enters and brings her something for her hands, and when June asks after Cora, Beth says that she was sent away and she doesn't know where, because the commander doesn't like liars. A fussing baby wakes up Luke, where he comes over and starts to talk to Nicole Hawley. Moira wakes up, and when she comes out, Luke tells her he'll get a bottle. Luke believes that Moira has all her shit together. Moira rebukes that why she's up all hours with a baby instead of something pretty, and that everyone is fucked up. After mentioning Hannah, he finally takes Nicole Hawley into his hands, mentioning how June had to go back for Hannah because he couldn't help. But Moira says June gave him another job to do. We see Eleanor working in the garden as June passes through, working on planting where the Martha lies. June walks with a Matthew discussing the Martha before June low-key threatens her walking partner with the death story of another. Next scene shows Emily and the optometrist, where things start to get fuzzy. The words that keep echoing in her head is better or worse. After the appointment, she pulls out her cell phone, and we see her wife on the other end starting to cry as she realizes it's Emily, and the shot of a bright green car blocking lanes of traffic. So howdy, folks. Here we are. It is the third episode of Handmaids and Harlots. And in today's episode, we're going to discuss episode two, season three of The Handmaid's Tale on Hulu. And I am your host, Ray. And I'm Kay. And welcome to our show. So y'all got a chance to check us out last week, so you sort of know the format. So today we're just going to run right into dealing with the themes that we found in this episode, which were not very many, but they apply pretty well across the board of the characters that we deal with in this episode. So I think the first one and the easiest one that Kay and I came across was the theme of trauma. Ever so much trauma. But then again, that's the entire show. (laughs) Right. So Kay, why don't you run us down like your thoughts, and I'll add things if I feel like I need to, but your thoughts sort of about what we see in the first scene when we deal with Luke. Luke seems to be having uh, dealing with his own PTSD as well. He's not only just somebody who is dealing with trauma secondary with Aaron and Emily and Moira, but he's also dealing with his own trauma. He he didn't come out of it, Gilead unscathed. So he he's doing a lot of some of the same things you can see in people who are not being treated for PTSD. He's really unfocused. 
like he completely forgot about a lot of things. He forgot about the dinner. He seems to have inabilities to keep track of paperwork. He's drinking during the day. He's super hyper-focused on Fred Waterford. Yeah, what was that? That he, he Was it a scrapbook that he was keeping? It looked like a scrapbook. And it, like he had a post-it note. I didn't read it as fast as I could have, honestly. But it was like, what is he into or something? Like, what is he a part of? I think it was. Right. So he's like, he's like scrapbooking this guy. It's almost like a, I want to say it's almost like an unhealthy fan obsession. You know, the thing where you end up stalking, these people end up stalking. <laughs> they're like, whoever it is that they're, they fixate on, like they're, you know, it's like this negative totem and they fixate on it. It's kind of strange. And I it suppose is. it gives him some relief from his, for his anger. Cause he can just like focus on it. And he, he's not exactly a, dealing with some PTSD. You can have these ideas that your emotions are not fitting the the living space that you're in like he can't be angry because he's got two other traumatized people in his life right now he can't be angry because there's now a baby in the house it's not like he can go haul off and punch a wall or start screaming or anything like that but he's also not dealing with any of his trauma he really should be seeing a trauma therapist yeah they probably well all of them should be i think that's true And it's like, he's got like dual threat trauma. And I'm not like trying to like drum up Luke's story because I think they all do. I think Emily in particular also has dual threat trauma. Mm -hmm. Um, June does, um, Moira, they all do. But there's the physical parts of it. Like when he escaped and he got shot, right? And he, everything that went on with that, like the the car accident, his being shot and, and that whole mess. And then what he went through with, being in the boat with Aaron when they first did when they finally got across the border into Canada and they were in the boat and they were getting shot at. Right. So like, there's that whole thing that was like really combat related combat kind of related trauma. But then you like add to that, the emotional trauma of having lost June and Hannah, like they might as well save them. Hmm? They couldn't have saved them. Yeah, and survivor guilt or escapee guilt. And mm-hmm. I wonder if there'll ever be any good studies on that for, like, refugees in general. That's not even so much a survivor guilt for them, but some kind of strange escapee guilt that comes on. Like, how did I get out and they didn't? Or I should have been the one that got stuck back there and not them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Probably is. I should probably check that out at some point. Right. He also went from dealing with this combat trauma to having to protect somebody. Because Aaron still wasn't speaking Mm -hmm. and if you think about it she probably her savior the person who was taking care of her is no longer there and it's because of him you could think about trauma wise because if he hadn't argued about getting on the boat they would have been out of there her protector her caretaker would not have been shot he's also got to protect aaron he's got to be the strong man there Mm -hmm. or it feels he does anyway yeah because i would make the argument that and not to her betterment, I don't think, but Moira is kind of the strong man there. Yeah. Just in general. But she's harder. She was a tough cookie to begin with. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? So she, the way she externalizes her trauma is a little different than the others. I, I noticed, too, that he was, seems to have a hard time with bonding. Like, he's having a hard time with Holly Nicole. And not because he doesn't love babies. And it's clear that he sees june in her he mentioned it even yeah but he that not wanting to get attached because you get attached to things and they go away 
And I think it could be also his anger focused in on Fred too, as oh, he yeah. believes this is Fred's kid. Yeah, he doesn't. I maybe he did, maybe isn't trusting himself very much. And then I notice he just like generally has anxiety, like he has anxious responses to things and he's keyed up more so like when we first meet him he's just such a laid-back guy when her him and june first start dating and even when they were married and we get the flashbacks and you know season one they just seemed so he just seemed so relaxed like when everything was falling apart and my moira was the one that was saying they stole that all my bank yeah and he was just like listen it's just it'll be fine he was like mr it'll be fine right Absolutely. And now it's like the shoe's on the other foot and he's suddenly, it, nothing's fine. Everything's bad. And and really, really taking all of this, like that he was asleep before and now he's not. And now he's got to fight it all, like all at once. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. So that's interesting. And then Emily, of course, we have been seeing for several, well, this is the third season of seeing Emily's trauma, which just seems to never fucking end. Ever. This girl just doesn't get a break. And it's interesting to see her now in this situation where that letdown, right? And this is where the PTSD is like sharpest. In the moment, she was on survival, you know, mode. And when she was in Gilead, everything she did was survival mode. It was. It was pretending her her gender traitorism. Yeah, all of it. Like, she was just like, you know, ready to fight, fight and flight. And now here she is, and the doctors are being respectful and asking her questions, and people are being kind to her and are inquiring after how she's doing and all of those sorts of things. And she is really, like, looking, you can tell just by looking at her, like, she's wondering when the other shoe's going to drop. Yeah. When the guardians are going to pop out of the corner or Aunt Lydia is going to come out of a closet or some other horrible thing is going to happen. I, I did notice it was kind of interesting that she, the first time that we kind of see her breaking out of her shell into the old way of her is when the doctor is trying to explain why it's taking so long for her ear to heal up. And she right. just really seems to stretch her knowledge of things and that's the first time we've heard her talk about that since lawrence's house right like her medical knowledge and she just like lays it out what's wrong like mm-hmm. she knows how her body works like all that's still there the intellectual capacity is still there she's just so timid now and seems to still like i said be kind of waiting for something terrible to happen it's interesting too that she you could we see her disassociate in this episode oh she disassociates hard <laughs> I thought that was really well done, actually, because people have like have a lot of assumptions about what the disassociation is like for PTSD survivors. And, you know, both you both I don't know if you want to talk about this, but as a as someone who suffers from post-traumatic stress disorder, seeing what how they displayed that was just like really well done because it isn't always like some weird fugue state and you're not always having flashbacks and it's not you know, necessarily some like movie scene deer hunter fucking thing that happens. Sometimes it's just like you are literally just sort of check out to this white noise place and your thoughts are like just stuck in a in a loop or 
or yeah, empty. Like you're just all of a sudden you're hollow. Like that this is like you're just not in your body and you're not in your consciousness, really. It's fucking weird. And I I loved how they filmed that with her doing the eye exam and the repetitive words, right? It was almost like hypnosis. Because it was better. the better and worse. Better yeah. and worse. And the trance comes on and she like just loses herself in that for however long that takes. Like I mean, I'm well, I am willing to talk about my own experiences because I've, I've gotten so used to talking about it. It's so simple now for me. Right. Not to, not to like just deny anything, kind of like deny that it's a hard topic to talk about. It's just, I've gotten used to talking about it so many times. Yeah. I especially think the fugues, the, that kind of disassociation was a really good scene because it's happened to me before and it's hard to explain to people how that is. It's, <laughs> There, when you hear, when you tell people about disassociating, they're like, I, I don't get it. What? So you're just like out of your body or. Yeah. They have really weird ideas about it. Yeah. And it's not that it's disrespectful. It's they're just trying to figure out something that they've never experienced. Right. I don't, I wouldn't, I would never say that they didn't. And some people that have trauma don't even recognize that they're disassociating. Like they just don't like they don't realize that part of the reason that they can only remember a third of a conversation with somebody that about something that is either stress is can be stressful, good, not just stressful, bad, that like just anything that like gets their blood rate up or their, you know what I mean? Their endorphins are cranked that half the conversation just disappears. Oh yeah. They just, you know, you, you just sink into like the marshmallow, you know what I mean? You're like, well, and then it's gone. And then you're like, what the fuck was I just talking about? Or what the fuck was I just thinking? Or what did he just say? What am I supposed to do now? You know, the thing where somebody's like, and he did complex directions is another place where that gets really hard because your brain just like locks on things and then disappears. And then you're like, go back to whatever you were doing. And you're like, wait, what was I doing? Like, there's a weird thing there, you know? It is. It's, it's a very super weird, like connection with the brain. I mean, PTSD does some terrible shit to the brain. Yeah, it rewires all of your, like, frontal cortex and how the, you process memories. And, I mean, even, like, people's faces. I, it, and I never had that problem before. You know what I mean? Like, remembering people's names. That's that's something that, you know what I mean? Oh, I have, um, I have depression along with PTSD. And the two of those together, along with the medications that I take, yeah. um, have caused extreme memory issues for me so names times dates i can forget that i've had meals yeah see and that's the worst part of it is like the ptsd causes your brain to be swiss cheese and then everything else they do to you to treat your ptsd makes your brain swiss cheese it's like hmm, you know i might as well be a fucking beehive for all (laughs) pretty much yeah And and it can feel so weird to be like, when sometimes you're like joking around about things like that, people can be like, well, then it must not be that bad. It's like, "Eh, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying I've had enough time to process and my way of processing is humor. Yeah, it's kind of like Moira. When Moira has that dark humor about shit, you know what I mean? We're all fucked up. We're all fucked up. It's like, yeah, we are all fucked up. It's fine. Um, but you really see this in Emily. They've done a really very, I think, respectful and responsible portrayal of post-traumatic stress disorder through Emily Lee's character. Mm-hmm. I really like it. And it's not over-dramatized either. Like, I sometimes think Janine's is, right? 
a little over the top. I, I know that maybe judgy and people might get on my ass about saying that, but I think in some ways Janine's is a little over the top just to make a point, which is yeah. not a bad thing. I think but- maybe she has a much more disassociated version of PTSD because she's still yeah. not out of the trauma. Yeah, right. She's and yeah, there's things there that maybe we'll they'll get into in the show. I don't know. But <clears throat> I think the portrayal of Emily's post-traumatic stress disorder and is really very well done. Mm-hmm. I, I think they all are, honestly. Everybody in Canada, like, it's being handled super well. And I guess when you're going through traumatic experiences, it's really hard to process what's happening to you with your previous post-traumatic stress disorder or any other previous traumatic events. Like, I don't know, maybe that's part of it, too, is that there's just no end to the trauma in Gilead. But the you see, I think they do a really good job of portraying how that you can be removed from the trauma and that shit just stays with you. Like we mentioned last week when Moira says, um, Gilead is inside you. Right? Mm-hmm. And it's true. Like that's the experience of PTSD. And I just love the way they're they're doing a really good job with it. I think as a as a PTSD survivor or I don't want to say survivor, but PTSD person. Sufferer? I, 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 there's so many, yeah, that's not one's, that one's not much better either. No, it's not much better, but in, in either case, somebody who has post-traumatic stress disorder, I really, it really means a lot to me that they handle it in a respectful way. Yeah, that it's not like just twitching or... Yeah, and like TV shows, they're like, oh, they all... It's got PTSD turned into a clock tower shooter. It's like, this doesn't fucking happen for 90% of the people that have that. And usually those people have, a, you know, a whole umbrella of other mental health issues that go with it, either because of the post-traumatic stress disorder or before. So like, there's so much... It, it's not like the media has made it out to be. Oh, like yeah. and said, I think when that... I made a reference, it's not like Robert De Niro's fucking character in The Deer Hunter. They're not all that. Yeah, I think the show is doing very respectful work with this. Yeah, I think so too. So we, when we were talking about this earlier, we talked to also about Emily's um, flat affect, which and and deferential um, nature, which is also another fairly good indicator of post traumatic stress disorder for anybody who's dealing with somebody in an authority position they have a tendency almost always to like minimize themselves in those circumstances so that they don't there's not a confrontation mm-hmm. and emily definitely comes across as like uh you know not wanting any any kind of confrontation uh, from anybody oh yeah she she doesn't confront luke uh when she's uncomfortable she she almost seems to pull back after flexing her intellectual muscle in front of the doctor when the doctor kind of gets a look on her face like, oh, yeah, you get it. But she kind of just seems to pull back in on herself. Well, like, right. I shouldn't have said that. Yeah, because, I mean, if she would said that in Gilead, she could have ended up in the wall. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, not that she did for being a lesbian or killing a guy, but, you know. <laughs> well, she suffered for those mistakes, too. <laughs> right. Context is everything. Yeah. Um so there was that. And then, and this is something that we can argue about whether it's traumatic or if it's just female acculturation, but her tendency to apologize or look sorry whenever she speaks. Yeah, she, she doesn't seem to want to to make herself 
into an aggressor. Yeah. Or be perceived as a threat. Despite the fact that, yeah, she's, you know, tried to kill Lydia and ran a guy over. Like, literally, she just, like, she's, like, the perfect picture of somebody who's not that person. Oh, yeah. She's so tiny. Yeah, but we've all seen her just pushed to the absolute fucking brink of her ability to, like, maintain. Oh, yeah. She's she's been through the shit. Emily, like, we talked about last week, you know, I just... An amazing actress and um, a great storyline, which I'm really glad. Heart we got. eyes for her. Yeah, hard eyes. Big hard eyes. So then let's talk about June's expression of trauma in this episode. Um, she's definitely seeing the other side of PTSD, the almost aggression. Yeah. Like she goes after Commander Lawrence and being like, no, you really got to keep the Marthas here. You know. She pushes. She talks back. Yeah. We saw some of this in season two, like when she straight up slapped Fred. Oh, yeah. But the interesting thing about it is that she knows this is it. She's changed tack. Like with Fred, all you probably needed to do was lift that skirt and show your bougie. Right. And he'd been right wherever. Like, think about that night. She gets him to just go to Jezebel's like the day after they'd already been there. She's just like, I want you so bad. And he was like zing and then there was like nick car car nick let's go like he just didn't even lawrence is definitely not gonna fall to the whole you know lift your skirts and act all oh no he is way too focused and too loyal to eleanor well and just like not fred's level of shallow oh absolutely not at all he's not like human well he's bad but he's not Fred's level of human puke. I mean, he's like literally not that guy. He's one way smarter and two, you know, he has, he has big thinks in his head. Fred's never had a big think that he didn't get from Serena first. Yeah. Legitimately doesn't have any big thinks that he didn't get from his wife. But yeah, she's, she's very aggressive this time. And that's a second side of PTSD is that, that sadness, this, making yourself smaller and then there's the aggression there's making yourself more into things pushing yourself into dangerous situations because yeah what's the worst that can happen to you now yeah right like i'm gonna go to the nth degree on this i'm like i'm not in a little bit i'm all in motherfucker here we go yeah (laughs) which you know is the is the basis of every fucking crazy lone gunman hero story ever it's the diehard Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. Like, everything now for June is yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. And she is, she is snappy. Yeah. Like, uh, oh, that must have been a hell of a blowjob. Red Center special. Being like, you need this. Come on, Breaking Bad. Yeah, she's like super, super confrontational when, and acting like she's bulletproof, which. She is definitely not. Well, I think, you know, how we talked about last week, that one of the things that we discussed as, as, a, as a theme was June's self-destructive behavior. And now that we see it in the context of an episode that's almost entirely about the trauma of the characters in the show and the way it, it works in each of their individual psychologies and their behavior, right? So now we have June, who has you know, gone Bruce Willis on this and had decided that since she has made it through everything she's already made it through, like she's going to make it through all the rest of the thing. 
Like, which it's, is, it's a definite part of the PTSD and trauma is that you think at some point you're invincible, especially when you're still in trauma situations. Right. So now she just thinks that she can do it and she's going to talk back to him and she's going to tell, you know, she's just going to get in a Martha uniform and walk across the city. Like, what the fuck? Yeah. And, I mean, I, I wouldn't have done that shit. I mean, I would have oh, been God. upset about all of the things that were happening, but I don't think you could have gotten me to get in one of them brown dresses and take that walk. Oh, absolutely not for me. I would have much rather like figured out a way to like, I don't know, support the, I mean, it's not like it wouldn't throw Molotovs, but if we're going to go there, we're going to do it all. I'm like half measures avail us nothing. I'm not one of those people. I either need to buy on the front or in the rear with the gear, but nowhere in between. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I either have to like go, you know, I just can't. And she's like wanting to walk both, both of those lines. Like, you know, she's had how many opportunities to escape. She could have escaped to Canada and gone right back to the fucking front. If she really wanted to be like a militant about this, she could have done that. Yeah, I mean, the way she was describing it, the first thing that, oh, God, I can't remember the Martha's name right now, but the escaping Martha, or the quote-unquote escaping Martha, was like, were you military? She goes, are you? And it's like, wow, okay, June, calm down. Yeah, don't be a dick. She's just asking. Oh, yeah, June's, like, super defensive, which is another part of people with people. They don't want their their bad decision-making and their hair-trigger uh, emotional reactionaryism to be questioned. And it can feel like it's a question personally on their own, like, yeah. um, psychological response. Are you fucking nuts? Every, every time somebody questions any decision you make or anything that you say, it sounds like to us, wah, 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 are you fucking nuts? Wah, wah, wah. Mm -hmm. It really does. And June is a definite expression of that. Cause I've lived in Juneville before. <laughs> not like, you know, not literally, but I mean, just like yeah. being in that angry place. I, I think a great deal of people with PTSD, if they're not on medication, can be stuck in anger for quite a bit of time because yeah. there's your brain has to like, especially with if you have depression as a as a follow up mm -hmm. depression. Once you start healing that, your brain has to go through all of the reactions again. So you're yeah. so, so sad for no reason. Yeah. Like, oh, no, a, a hot dog rolled on, onto the floor. It, it's <laughs> just it's the end of the world. Yeah, the and then it's. And then it's rage, like yeah. no reason rage. Yeah. Yeah. It and is. it's, it's just your brain trying to fix itself. Yeah. It's trying to, it's trying to rewire. It's not easy. Mm -mm. So that's like kind of breaks down June. Although we do see her panic. She does lose her shit. Oh yeah. This. I think she it's reverts. Yeah. Right. She reverts the panic mode. And, and I think it's really there's a lot of ill feeling and uncertainty about Lawrence's uh, actions towards June in this episode and seems to pick up because of what he does. But I think it's super important. And and I don't know if his me meaning is as altruistic as I maybe I'm assigning it, but I think it is a valuable lesson. I think it was right to make June um, do that to bury that woman and to take care of it by herself because she's oh, the yeah. one that talked him into it. And she, ultimately she's the one that decision led to that woman's death. And she doesn't even know who she is. That's what he, he put in there. It's, yeah. You don't even know this woman's name and yep. you're, you're just kind of blase about her death. Yeah. If you're going to join this resistance, you need to start caring and, and not just caring in the big, with the big C like I care, but like caring. Mm -hmm. taking care learning who these people are and what they have to offer and and 
whether or not, you know, they're actually as committed to this as you are before you commit them to it. Like, and the consequences of making these decisions, people don't think about that. They think about, oh, yeah, if we get invaded by whatever, I just get a gun and start shooting people. You don't realize that, you know, you shoot like two guys who come to try to steal your cow today and 90 guys come tomorrow. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Maybe you should just let them shoot, have the fucking cow, that cow today. Yeah. It, it's, then, you gotta, you have to sometimes take a loss for today to live for tomorrow. Right. And I don't think June is intellectually in that place right now. And part of that is the trauma. It's blocking her ability to make good decisions. It really is. It really is. So then the next um, character that we wanted to discuss in in terms of this is Moira. I mean, she really seems to act like she's got everything together, especially and even Luke mentions that is that she's got her shit together. But if you look at past scenes, like in season two, with the whole sex in the bathroom, it was yeah. somebody else's pleasure. She could not be touched. Yeah. She could not be given any kind of pleasure. And she and... even denied them the intimacy of her name. Oh, yeah. yeah. It was a fake name. Yeah. Her whore name. The... Yeah, it was her her trauma name. She even, you know, says that she... uh she she mentions during the dinner that it, it, we're not looking for happily ever after, just after. And we know, too, we, those of us who've been watching the series since the beginning, is that she was a tough cookie to begin with. And mm-hmm. I'm sure there's a backstory to all of that. She's, I, I mean, we can surmise. Like, what can we surmise about her character? Well, she's an African-American female in the United States. Mm-hmm. And if we take it contextually, it's at a time when police violence towards African Americans in the United States is is at a, a recent high. And she's uh, homosexual. A homosexual. Yep, she's a lesbian. It makes her puts her in two categories that make her far more vulnerable socially, politically, and physically, just in general. Like all mm-hmm. that is true. So like she comes at this with her own baggage of trauma, I think, a bit. And kind of rolled this, rolled around with some of this already. But then Gilead makes it, takes it to the next extreme, right? Her race finally doesn't matter. And even it's just her, her ovaries, it's just her ovaries. Even her lesbianism is not as big a threat to the uh, the establishment as her ovaries getting away. Like, like literally, that's their their view of it. And then when she's not suitable because she escapes, then they make her a prostitute because woman's She's not a woman, really. She's just a she's just a socket. Mm-hmm. So she's like kind of seen it all at this point. She um, has. She's seen the best that she can get, and then so far the worst. Yeah, literally. I love Moira's character. I love her. She's I heart ties her. Right. She's um, tough and intelligent in her own way. Street smarts. Mm-hmm. Street smarts. She should have stayed with June. Jen wouldn't be making these stupid decisions. <laughs> maybe we could hope. Oh, uh, I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe I, I'm, I'm still happy that she. Worse. I'm still happy she left and she got to Canada. Of course, I. Of course, I am too. But yeah, you better. <laughs> and then the other one that we need to talk about, and this is one of those things that might be a hot take for some people. Although I will say on Reddit, like everybody is kind of an Ann Dowd fan girl. Have you noticed? Mm-hmm. 
I think it's just because it's Anne Dowd. <laughs> well, yeah, right? Because she's just fucking amazing. But um, but they're kind of all Anne Dowd fangirls. So, like, nobody gets too mad at Lydia. But Lydia's trauma, I think, is we're just starting to get, like, the tip of the iceberg. Mm-hmm. Uh, ever since she's been an aunt, she is always, whenever she has had to punish there's only been one time she really got angry enough to do something, but it was pushing her religious talk back at her. Yeah, when June snaps back with the with the Bible quote. Mm-hmm. But other than that, she's always had a reason that very soft-spoken, this is why you're doing, this is happening, explaining why they're being punished. Yeah, like a parent, you know, a very abusive parent does or would. Mm-hmm. But when it's June tries to help her, yeah. yeah, when June tries to help her, you know, yeah. it's, she doesn't come up with a good enough reason until Lawrence is standing there. Yeah. And I think we see a, a pretty clear manifestation of, of Lydia's trauma in her just flying off the handle. And oh, yeah. her sudden, susp- she was always suspicious, nosy bitch. Mm-hmm. But, like, the vehemence with which she questions June about what is up with Eleanor. Oh, most definitely. Uh, I mean, June tried to, like, straight out tell that Fred was abusive. And Lydia kind of just lets it roll. Yeah. But now there's a slightly sick woman and she is freaked out. Yeah. And she has a, she makes a reasoning. She goes... There has to be a reason that Emily, this well, in her mind, trying to get back on track, handmaiden, suddenly just often stabs me. Because she still doesn't understand her own hand in all of this. Mm-mm. I think that she she thinks that she is doing the best she can in this world. Yeah. I think she thinks she really believes her own press, or believes the press, she's doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. Which I think is interesting, because I think her trauma and her response to the trauma of Emily's attack and the fall down the stairs and her loss of self-control. I'm really interested to see if in future episodes we get more of her backstory. Like what put Lydia here? I know I've seen on Reddit, some people being like, I just don't care. You know, it's too much background information trying to make too many people gray, but it's like, but people are gray. Yes. There is no way to just live life. You know, God, to say that there's not some kind of gray in people. Don't they have enough soap operas and sitcoms for people who can't take stories already? Mm-hmm. I, I'm sorry. This is something I don't have any patience for. The idea that characters have to fit really overused and worn out tropes and they have to either be fucking good or fucking bad and i'd like to take this moment to point out that people who are codependent and have post-traumatic stress disorder have black and white thinking it's like one of the first things a therapist will point out to you so Mm -hmm. what is it in our fucking society that requires everything to be black and white either these characters are white hats or they are black hats and we don't like it when they're complicated because i mean even if even if you look at fred fred is gray yeah Fred is gray. Luke is gray. Nick is gray. Yeah. They're... June's gray, and she's getting yeah. grayer. You can't take a real-life situation and just assume 
that this is what's happened and this is what it's going to be. Yeah, you can't, if you need to pick out a white knight in a story and you can't find one, you're not reading the right book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because honestly, you know, go get some fairy tales. That shit only works in those. And not in the German ones. <laughs> yeah, not, the, not Brothers Grimm. Just, no. Just to make sure you understand, not those. But Disney. <laughs> but yeah, I'm sure when the Disney streaming service comes on, you'll be very comfortable there. But this is not a story that doesn't allow for um, gray area because it's dealing with things that are, as Margaret Atwood has stated, have at, happened at one time or are currently going on somewhere in the world. Mm-hmm. And so they're not like out of, it's not out of space. It's not Star Wars or some other shit. It's like real stuff. And it's, like, it's not something that could only happen if the worst of things happen. Right. I mean, wake up folks unless you're paying not paying attention to the news we're just like eight steps from fucking gilead right now so it's kind of like that Mm -hmm. but i i just i think it's interesting because i i like lydia's character as a plot mover for sure but i would like to see what got her there like why is she so oddly compassionate and and believes it and believes she's believes she's being compassionate despite the fact that she's like oversaw, you know, a girl having her eye plucked out and you know what I mean? And she's so compassionate to the to the to the girls at when you know, one point. Yeah. You know, she she comforts them, you know. In her she, weird way. Yeah, she comforts them in a weird very weird way. And just you know, she's got compassion. It's so terribly skewed, but she's got compassion and passion for all of this sort of thing. But it's, I've wanted to know more about her ever since she mentioned she was a godmother and that it wasn't her fault. Yeah. It's interesting, too, that June keeps talking about the things that Aunt Lydia says. Mm-hmm. She keeps quoting her. This is like a new thing. Like season two, actually, she mm-hmm. mentions the whole thing about Gilead is inside of you. Yeah. And weird. now she's talking about the seeds. Yep. She's like, I'm going to just start quoting Aunt Lydia kind of in a weird way, which is like, oh boy. But I think Lydia is ex- an explanation, a, a, another view on how Gilead has created trauma on both sides. And. Mm-hmm has taken advantage of the trauma that existed in the society pre-Gilead to get to Gilead, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's really, it's a really interesting. And then we have a speculative trauma because we both agree. We really want to know what the fuck, like Aunt Lydia, what the fuck <laughs> is up with Eleanor? I need to know this. <laughs> what is going on with Eleanor? Like there's been all kinds of theories about that. Like maybe they lost a child in the war and she. Oh, oh, what if they lost a child to the colonies? Oh, fuck. Oh, that would would fuck Lawrence up. Cause I mean, she talks about how the colonies, it it was was his idea. It was all his fault. It's his ideas. I hate you. Oh yeah. Right. It's all his fault. It's all his fault. It's, yeah, she, there's a story with Eleanor, and I'm, I'm and wondering if this. we're going to get it. I need this. 
Yeah, I need it too. And it's interesting too, because we've seen Eleanor in, do this a couple of times. I, I, I want to say that we saw a moment of her being loose, really lucid with Emily in season two, right? Mm-hmm. But the rest of the time, she's just sort of raving and odd and in and, and her own little world or f- melting down like on screen. Like, blah, 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 blah. She's melting down. But it's interesting that in this episode, we get it again, where she's sitting there with Aunt Lydia and she's just melting down. She just, it's too much stimulation, right? And she's done. And that oh, yeah. also is a, is a thing that happens with people who have mental illness and, and trauma. Is they just, there's a point they reach over stim and then they're just melted. They're done. I, I did notice something. Hmm. Uh, Lawrence is constantly touching her. Yeah. With a bit of pressure. Yeah. Bit. And it seems like, like it's almost a focusing tool of I'm here, you're safe. Yeah, to keep her from to, to keep her from disassociating, which is mm-hmm. by the way one of the things partners are taught to do if their partner will allow it is when they catch them disassociating that they touch them. They can get away with it. That was one of the things they told my ex husband to do with me as if I was losing it, I was going off that he was if I was okay with it to touch me. But we had uh, another. We had another cool, we had another cool thing, which was if you didn't think it was safe to touch me, he always carried a pack of Wrigley spearmint gum because I had a memory, a particular memory about an uncle that was really always very good to me. Mm-hmm. And um, after a particular, after an episode where I'd been hit for no reason um, and I was crying and he came to talk to me about it, he, that he didn't touch me either, but he offered me a piece of gum. There's um, for me, my, therapist at the time had mentioned pressure therapy so i have a uh, ball python who does yeah. who, who squeezes and it's very very comforting it's kind of almost like how a service dog will lean on yeah a, uh, a pts pstd uh person right. is that they'll lean and that pressure centers you yeah it's kind of nice so yeah when i was losing it chris would just whip out the gum and he'd be like do you want a piece of gum and I, it would like immediately it would like you know what i mean I'd clue back in, mm-hmm. like catch back, catch myself, whatever it was I was looping into, you know, if I was like fully disassociating or I was es- escalating up in, into panic or angry, you know, that expression of it. Mm-hmm. So it was, it, it's good. It seems like he is really invested in her. That's like the one tenderness that we see in him. It's also a sign of like super, super, super rage if something is to happen to his wife oh yeah even the threat of talking about her yeah he loses his shit like lost his shit he made it really clear what his fucking boundaries are like june can like smart off to him about a million things but that would not be one of them Mm -hmm. and and it's interesting because then later in the scene where the the they bring back the the shot handmade or the shot escaping martha right and they come up the stairs because they, the guardians are there and there's that blob on the wall. Like, so like the scene previous, we see Eleanor and she's like melted. She's done. She's gibbering and she's wants to go to her room and she's totally overstimmed. And then the next scene we see her and she comes down the stairs and her sort of semi disheveled look, like her hair is a little off still, but she's like lucid and she sees the bloody handprint and she says, clean it up. And then she runs interference and goes straight for the guardians and takes them into the dining room. And it's just, I, I keep thinking back to that, that medication that's sitting oh, next tray. to the, on the tray. Yeah. 
and I almost wanted to go like Google <laughs> mental health pills, red and white. <laughs> right. Because honestly, like- mine, my own is, is bright red and it used to be red and white. Oh shit, son. So yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> it could be like- a higher level of, could be a higher level drug. Right. Which is interesting because I thought it was my understanding that they don't really let people do that stuff in Gilead. There's like, we seen anybody go in for mental health treatment? We haven't seen anybody, but not Luke. Oh my goodness. Nick, when June was completely phased out in season two, yeah. asked that they take her to a different doctor. Yeah. I wonder if it's one of those hush hush things, kind of like the doctors impregnating the handmaids. Yeah. Right. Get, get her a prescription. Yeah. Which is interesting because it sets up the question because we were talking about this before we started rolling for the recording, but is that part of Lawrence's connection to the black market and the underground? Because, I mean, the first time we meet the one girl that's working, the one Martha, she worked at Jezebel's and was part of the black market. Which I was so amused because I spent like, as soon as she started talking, I'm like, is that the Martha from Jezebel's? It is the Martha from Jezebel's. I was so excited. And right, and we find out right there that she's working with the black market. Mm-hmm. She's talking to Nick about black market materials and whatever. So, like, is that why she's there? Because she can get, she has connection to get Eleanor medication. And that's where episodes. And that's what the resistance has on Lawrence that he is helping to, in his own way. <laughs> limited though it may be <laughs> and you know with wrath and fury and some other things but i, I oh, just yeah. think it's interesting now we are all like thirsty for eleanor stories we want to know what's the fuck up with eleanor because i have such a mighty need we need it we kind of need it it's like oh, what's what's the story morning glory giveth me the info <laughs> yes right. if it does end up being that they lost a kid to the colonies i am drinking an entire bottle of wine <laughs> Is that going to be a wine episode? Are we going to have a wine episode? It will probably, I'm sorry, but it will probably start with me going, woohoo! We're going to, we're going to have to like, yeah, because you got one right. Yeah. And then it was, I'm just like, wow. You know what I mean? Granted, it's only episode two, but I'm again, just kind of wondering what the fuck was wrong with the interviewer, the reviewers for the first six episodes that they were having problems with this. After last season, which was like a slog through misery porn yeah like what's going on come on why were they so miffed about it i i still haven't found a fucking thing in either of these two episodes that i am like well that's stupid this is slow i'm bored this is dumb i don't know maybe this is just reverb from like bad endings of other tv shows Game of uh, maybe they were just taking it yeah taking out got on everyone else I, I mean, I, I would. <laughs> I did. Anyway, but like, <laughs> shit, you know, but I think this, I think this season has been really good. I'm really, so far, two episodes in, and I'm going to, I'm going to tell you all that I'm going to be honest. It's Handmaid's Court. I watched three already. And you fail me. <laughs> I'm a jackass. Because <sighs> I, know, I, I know things that Kay doesn't. I, I only watch the episodes when we're going to do stuff, so. Uh, I'm so bad. You are. And Girl. I'm just, I'm like, I'm so ready for three. And then you're like, I've already watched three. And it's like, dadnabbit, we're yeah. supposed to share this together. Yeah, 
fuck that girl anyway. <laughs> but yeah, I just, I think it was a really, I thought it was a really good episode. And I, I again, I think the cinematography in this was really well. I'm still struck by how the house is, seems different than when Emily arrived. They really did clean up after, after having Aunt Lydia in the house and. Well, they did. They took out everything, like most of the books, most of the imagery. I don't remember any naked lady pictures in this episode anywhere on the walls, so I'm pretty which, sure. Which makes me sad, because I well, miss those. yeah. <laughs> but I think they handled it really well. I like the interplay between the the Marthas and, the, and June. I thought it was really good. Mm-hmm. I like that Joan is at least getting sort of an ally in the house. Since we're really not certain of whether or not Lawrence is indeed an ally or not, he's sort of like this still like, hanging question mark. Ugh. I just think it's going to be interesting when Eleanor takes June aside and starts talking to her. Ooh, God, I hope so. I hope so too. Like, I really want it. I and it'll it. be interesting to see how much further down the slope of un- lack of control Aunt Lydia goes. I don't know. I mean, when they turned around and she was uh, in the previews, she's like, I need friends with power. And it shows Aunt Lydia. I don't know if that means that right. Aunt Lydia is going to the Gilead dark side. <sighs> I don't know, but I need this in my life. <laughs> You're killing yeah. me with you looking ahead. Uh, I'm not saying a word. I'm just saying I think it's I think it's going to be interesting. To watch Lydia's character character arc. We did discuss. Did we have one more? Did we have another theme? We did sort of. Yeah, oh, nope. solidarity. Yeah. Oh, like, God. Yeah. Tra- we talked talk like, about trauma. Trauma or whatever. But let's, let's discuss solidarity. I mean, we kind of hit on it a little bit. That the Marthas clearly had solidarity prior to all of this. Um, we all are left to question whether or not the Marthas actually had anything to do with any of June's previous escape attempts beyond one where they tried to get her out with the baby Mm -hmm. um but they have a solidarity amongst themselves they do and seem to be working or have better connections probably because of their ability to travel to that part of town that we see where they take the the escaping martha or the attemptive attempted escaping martha that they get more news so they're in a chance, they have a chance to like work a little better maybe with the resistance than we've seen. Like the handmaids are not able to really connect with that. So they have a thing. And then the man handmaids kind of had their own solidarity, although because of their situation being so tenuous and dangerous, really, it's, it's really a bigger risk for them in some ways. Yeah, it really is. I mean, there's, there's no, there's no power whatsoever. Yeah. And if they get caught, you know, they may not, they have some, what people are calling plot armor, but they have perfectly usable uteruses. They're not going to just kill these people. Mm-hmm. They'll cut off body parts. I mean, I don't know how many of you ever saw the late eighties, mid or early nineties movie boxing Helena, but literally if they wanted to, they could go to that place. They could. And make these women non-ambulatory if they want to. Then just just take away the pretense of them being anything other than incubators. It's I don't possible. think they've ever walked away from them being just incubators. They're, they're never discussed that this is their child. Well, no, but I mean in terms of they get to go to the store. But, you know, they uh-huh. literally could, like, 
keep them in a they take off their arms and legs and keep them somewhere and they're just like a sexual doll that comes out once in a while until they get pregnant i mean like it could be worse i know that's hard to imagine mm-hmm. but it could be worse at least the pretense is what's saving them yes Right. And well, it doesn't make a good photo op when you're trying to do negotiations with anybody for food that, yeah, we have handmaids, but you can't ever see one. Because we've cut off their arms and legs and left them completely helpless and unable to do anything except get pregnant and give birth. Yeah. It wouldn't be good optics. I think the Marthas would strike. (laughs) Oh, I think there would be a lot of... They they seem to know how far they can take it, kind of. So the handmaid's like, it's harder to build solidarity, but it exists. So we see it, you know, in the Marthas, it seems fairly universal from what we've seen. And the handmaids, there's some, but it's dangerous. And then we see it also in the survivors. The the refugees in Canada are building solidarity amongst themselves. To what end, we don't know yet, right? But they seem to be coming together in a way. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's really not much I can add for that. Right. I think it's really cool right now that we're seeing the Marthas and the Handmaids get tighter. Especially after Alma's like, well, Close that too. Right. But Alma sitting here saying, oh, they don't trust us at all. Yeah. Yeah. It's a mess. So I think it's interesting. I think it's really interesting. I think the solidarity thing is is maybe a small subcurrent to all of it, or maybe it's to take a look at the ways in which trauma binds people together, like that it can be a source of strength too when you meet other people that have experiences like yours, and how that that common common experience can also make common cause, mm-hmm. right? I think which you know is basically what solidarity means. So yeah. That was kind of our take on episode two, season three of The Handmaid's Tale on Hulu. As for stuff that's like been on Reddit, like we want to close out with just some weird shit that we've seen. I'd like to point out that I got a silver award on Reddit. (laughs) Just want to point it out. She's Um, just super excited to share. (laughs) Yeah, right. And not for a post, but a comment. It made me happy. It's nice to know that I didn't get flamed because that happens too. <laughs> Just <laughs> take it. Whole, yeah, it could have been the opposite. Um, and and particular that I did it and there was a hot take thing about about uh, Serena Joy, which, uh, but that was the thing. <laughs> I have hot takes about Serena Joy. Any of you have actually gone to the WordPress, I do a whole hot take on Serena Joy, which then I just later kind of, made even better and more clear when I wrote it on Reddit to as a reply <laughs> reply to somebody else's reply I'm, to somebody else's post. That's what it was. I'm like the third one in and I still got a fucking silver. So um, proud of you. Yeah, I'm proud of me. But good. Um I know me. that there was a post about Emily's cholesterol, but I had too much to dream. Oh yeah. Uh, they said that being familiar with Chekhov's gun, they were curious at the mention of Emily's cholesterol and did a little digging, and they found two studies. One study about how radiation caused a significant increase in cholesterol levels of atomic bomb survivors, and that those levels were higher in women than men, which ties back to her being in the colonies. 
Mm-hmm. And another study found that veterans with PTSD are also likely to experience increased cholesterol, although it's unclear whether it was correct uh, eh, correlation or causation. Right. Then has and really I, I definitely think that this was an amazing put together for such a very short post. So had too much to dream. You are totes awesome. I love seeing studies uh, connecting things. I know. And now there was one other thing that we were discussing. We came to discussing that from the show, I guess, earlier was clitoral reconstructive surgery. I just love saying clitoral reconstructive surgery. I'm sorry. I, it doesn't roll off my tongue quite the way it does yours. Oh, wow. That, <laughs> was, that was like a 11 million puns all in one place at all one time. It was fucking glorious. I, <laughs> I'm a genius. Okay. So anyway, um, and we, I'm, I'm you, telling the wife about this later. <laughs> you have to understand that like, there's context for this whole pun issue because like we have a whole channel in our discord for our, our roleplay guild that is just for puns. Like I stay away I re- from it as far as possible. <laughs> I refuse to participate in this thing because they're so bad. These puns are fuck terrible most of the time. Most of the time. But Sometimes I, I got a good one. Apparently. I apparently I'm just better at pun. I don't know. Whatever that was Roll good. off the tongue. <laughs> so I anyway. hope you're proud of yourself. <laughs> I am. So we like did some research, of course, on clitoral reconstructive surgery. There I managed it without blah, 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 blah. Um I mean if you need me to say it, I'll say it. It rolls off my tongue so well. Oh my god. No, I'm never letting it go. I'm never sorry, people. No, you don't say that to a lesbian. You Just don't say it. Okay. So my, <laughs> we, I did some research and we found um, an article actually that dates back to like 2014 and excuses if we don't know, but not, neither of us have suffered genital mutilation. We've had other trauma. This isn't one of them. And we live in the Midwest. So we don't encounter a lot of people who have had genital mutilation. So I'm, I'm also in the middle of nowhere. So yeah. It's all my, the town I live in is like 200 people. So there's that. Okay. There's more people than that, but you you are, but yeah. And, and the other is that, you know, there's a lot of things as a woman and as a feminist to be angry about. I can't do them all. I I, I do still have rage for this one though. I do. When it gets brought up, I get testy about it, but. Do you get testy? Testy, testies. No, I don't get those. Yuck. Okay. (laughs) Well, not entirely yuck, but whatever. I am now we're not getting into that conversation. Can't stop myself. Sorry, people. See, that rolls off my tongue just fine. Testy. Ugh. Anyway, <laughs> I love your build a cat act. So we were doing some reading. We did some research. And apparently there is this doctor named Marcy Bowers um in California. And she is like one of very few doctors who who does this reconstructive surgery and Annie and I were just both really curious about it mostly because we know trans folks I've never really thought about what any of those advancements in cosmetic surgery and reconstructive surgery for genitals would mean in terms of you know for women who have been victimized by genital mutilation so this article was just fantastic we were both shocked and amazed and encouraged 
and I'm gonna say I'm gonna I'm gonna flick my collars up about this. Uh, Marcy Bowers, the one who does it in uh, in the Americas, because there is another article that we've seen um, uh, called "Clitoral Reconstruction Using a Vaginal Graft After Female Genital Mutilation," which is from Trinidad, but it is also being done in Spain. Yeah. Um, but the one in America, Marcy Bowers, actually studied at the University of Minnesota. Huzzah! All right, I had, yeah. She had to do that. I did have to do that. State rep. I think this is interesting because I've seen, like in college, I saw films about female genital mutilation, some pretty graphic stuff. Mm-hmm. And there's lots of different kinds of female genital mutilation, which a lot of people don't understand. It goes from like very sterile sort of situation, like they situations like they have in Saudi Arabia where Mm -hmm. they go to the hospital and it's done. And it's also leaves more of a woman's genitalia intact. And then there are places where they take the vulva and all, but I, I think it's really wonderful that medicine is making this kind of, thing possible and i didn't know but i feel educated this is the thing about you know researching and learning and like you know trying to have a informed opinion about things so i just thought it was interesting because andy and i both were like that's a thing they can do clitoral reconstruction i I, I spent the whole time just being like is is this a thing like can we do that now yeah neither k or i have any experience with it so it was very and like very enlightening, and I think it's pretty freaking amazing what we can do with medicine. And it's good that Emily might be able to have that done. You know, if she decides to get it done. Yeah, not that women's, all of a woman's worth or her ability to have a meaningful relationship is predicated on her ability to enjoy sex. But for so long, we have been told, burst by religion, that our enjoyment of sex was not necessary for sex and Mm -hmm. but sex was necessary in fact if we enjoyed it we were sinful and dangerous and then to go through a whole nother phase which i'm going to be very careful in politic about how i mention but where it became fashionable to shame women who enjoy sex outside of very specifically accepted, mutually accepted circumstances between both feminists and the right patriarchy, Mm -hmm. between the patriarchy and the matriarchy, as it were, that we have a, we have a time, an opportunity to say, no, it has a right to sexual gratification and that, And that the Canadians or the doctors or the people, you know, on the other side of the fence from Gilead respect and understand that, you know, Mm -hmm. that Emily has a right to sexual gratification. She has a right to to take back what was taken from her to get it back. And I, she does, doesn't have to just learn to live with the fact that she doesn't have it. So I, I'm just, you know, makes me happy. There's that nod too. I thought was really good. Mm -hmm. And that's it. I think. Yeah. Um, keep going, Reddit. Do you, <laughs> baby. Um, We've been reading all your stuff. 
and really except me i can't read past these read the spoiler shit i can't read the spoilers i'm still stuck in (laughs) i'm still stuck in the uh (laughs) second episode and i'm not reading ahead in spoilers i've been really good about not doing that like beyond three i'm not gonna like dive in too deeply so if we didn't talk about the thing that you were really interested in this week i'm sorry because it probably had to do with episodes we haven't seen and since now there are more new episodes that don't we're not doing three of these a week it's please enough. god we can't do it guys <laughs> it's good to see now that the season's back that there's so much going on in reddit and um really good things really good posts i read some really interesting stuff um some interesting takes some hot takes i i wow i do want to bring this one up well no i'm not i'm gonna wait for episode three and then we'll get into this one i have a hot take about something i did read on reddit this last week and um, but that pertains to episode three and we'll just save that for the next one. But anyway, I think, I think, so. I think, are we done? Do you have any parting thoughts? <sighs> nah, I got nothing except give me more Eleanor. <laughs> yeah. More Eleanor. We want more Eleanor and Lydia's backstory for sure. So yeah. that has been our episode and we're going to, Gonna, we're just going to go do stuff now because we are busy women and have things to do. And those of you who have been following us on Twitter know that my friend Squid here. Oh, God. <laughs> I, I I have retweeted um, Kay's stream on Twitch. She is a game streamer on Twitch. Yeah. So look her up. Google her or check her, look for her on Twitter or not Twitter. Well, you no, I'm, look, I'm, I'm you, on Twitter. <laughs> you can look for her on Twitter too, but you can also look for her on Twitch as historical squid. And if you are into gaming at all, or just, you know, like her, cause she's likable Aww. and I'm not, you, you should follow her. It would be a good idea. Uh, just to let you know, though, this month uh, on my Twitch, we're raising money for the Trevor Project. What's the Trevor Project? Uh, the Trevor Project is a suicide prevention program for LGBTQ plus youth. I only have a $500 limit for my donation. I mean, if we go past that, I'm straight up celebrating. <laughs> so there you I'm go, folks. Already celebrating with what we've gotten so far. So. All right. All right. So there's even a good reason to go watch our Twitch besides that she's amazing. Aw. She's pretty great. I, I like her. I hope so. Otherwise, this would be a really awkward moment to find Wouldn't out. It would be weird to be like, oh, by the way, I just asked you because, you know, you talk too much. No, um, <laughs> but that's not her. That's me. So, yeah, if you get a chance to check out her Twitch, you can definitely check out our Twitter. All of those links are on our anchor page, I believe, and should be in the episode notes. So until next time, blessed be the fight. Blessed be the fight. And that's a wrap on another episode of Handmaids and Harlots, the podcast. We are indebted to EDM Mond for use of their song, Memories, Innocence of a Girl, available through Audio Library. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please smash your like button wherever you find us. Follow us on Twitter at HandmaidsH, where you can make comments, share news and thoughts, or email us directly at HandmaidsNHarlots at gmail.com. 
And for essays by either myself or Kay, check out and subscribe to our WordPress blog at handmaidsandharlots.wordpress.com. Until next time, peace be with you. Thank you.